Wonder Things Studios proudly presents the Roundtable Podcast, Episode 75. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Moses Siragar. And I'm Dave Robison. And you've tuned in to the Roundtable Podcast. On the Roundtable Podcast, we invite writers to come onto the show and pitch a story idea to us and our esteemed guest host. With Cat Rambo this week, and we're going to take that material, we're going to work that story, add a little bit of a unicorn horn, add a dragon tail, a <laughs> manticore action, centaur, wrap it all up. Next thing you know, we're going to have some literary gold. Literary gold indeed. Awesome. Moses, dude, I am so delighted to have you as my co-host for this episode. I really, I, I know it was last minute and you stepped up like a champ. Thank you so much, sir. I'm grinning from ear to ear. <laughs> you and me both. You and me both. And and no doubt much of that is due to the fact that we do have a, a charming uh, and epic guest host waiting in the wings. Let's bring her back on. Dear friends, uh, fresh from her fabulous 20 minutes with of just seven days ago, uh, where we spoke of her upcoming book, The Beasts of Tabat. Please welcome back to the big chair here at the round table, Kat Rambo. Kat, I'm, I'm delighted to have you back. I'm even more delighted to once again delve into the brainstorming froth with you. Thank you so much for making the time. Well, thank you, because I had a lot of fun last time, and I'm looking forward to this time, too. Uh, there will be there will be epic goodness. I have it on good authority. I'm a, pro- oh. pro- I'm a prognosticator in that respect. So, Kat, uh, uh, your winter sessions, your curricula are, are, have wound down. January and February was just a, a flurry of... of Fabulous workshops, not to mention, uh, good grief, articles and stories coming out. So much going on. Plus, the Beasts of Tabat has 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 finally come of age and it has come out into the world. Just, I'm just going to sit back. Tell us what is coming up in your world, ma'am. Well, one of the cool things about this year is I actually have two books coming out. Aha. Uh, because not uh, just Beasts of Tibet, but uh, later on this fall, I'm going to be doing another double-sided collection uh, like Near Plus Far, but this one's going to be all fantasy stories and called Neither Here Nor There. Now, when you say double-sided, what does that mean? It's, uh, it's Do you remember the old Ace Doubles? I do. It's one of those. Oh, my God. They're still making those. That's, that's fabulous. That's my first collection, Near Plus Far. That's what it is. On one side, it's uh, Near Future Stories, and the other side, it's Far Future. Oh, wow. And what, what's the what's the parallel between these two? So neither here nor there. One side is uh, fantasy, secondary world fantasy, and the other side is fantasy set in our world. Very cool. <laughs> She's two books coming out in one year. That's huge. Uh, uh, now what else is coming up? Cause I know, <laughs> I know you cat. There's, there's a hell of a lot more than that brewing on the back burners. Well, I believe that as of the middle of the year, I will move from being vice president of CIFWA to being uh president of CIFWA barring a highly unlikely, uh, organized write-in campaign. Oh my. Uh, Cause I'm, ru- I'm running unopposed right now. So I will be, I believe CIFWA president, um, which takes up a certain amount of energy, and, and I've got some projects that I want to see pushed through all the way. So I'm going to stick around for two years and then take some time off from CIFWA. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. That's amazing. Yeah, you're going to be ready for some time off. Uh, but but that's fabulous. And and I, I have to point out, I'm just now catching up on my house of cards. So... <laughs> 
So, so Cat Rambo, Frank Underwood. Are there any parallels? Are there any parallels? But my husband laughs because he used to get teased when I was running the mud. I, the, the mud's name was Armageddon Mud. Right. And somebody at one point said to him, "How's it feel to be the first lady of Armageddon?" The first lady of Armageddon. Damn. Hey <laughs> <laughs> Rambo, you know. Oh, that's awesome. And so there's a lot of stuff that's going on. I'm actually working on. Uh, uh, we're doing as part of the 50th anniversary celebration at the Nebulas this year. I've been co-editing a Sifwa cookbook. Ah, uh, yes. Where we've had a lot of recipes uh, sent in by uh, people like David Brin and uh, Elizabeth Ann Scarborough. And I mean, just lots of really cool recipes, uh, lots of uh, cool figures. Um I, I think it's going to be really neat. That's very cool because because it's almost like it, it's like you can eat what they eat. That's it. <laughs> it's like getting their clothes. I can wear his clothes. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, and it's it's a party focused cookbook, so everybody has uh, contributed things that are suitable for celebrations, and so I, I think it really will be fun. And, and one of the nice things is we have uh, recipes from two. Members that sadly we lost last year, oh. uh, which is Yuji Foster and Jay Lake, uh, right. each contributed recipes. So I'm, and in fact, at the uh, New York reception last fall, we uh, featured Jay's recipe. What a wonderful commemoration! Yeah, that's awesome. Well, anything else? I mean, I know, I know your your convention schedule alone is going to keep you racked in frequent flyer miles. Well, I, I'm doing a Emerald City Comic Con for the second time, and I'm doing Phoenix Comic Con for the first time, and I'm doing Gen Con. Which oh, I'm excited about! I'm part of the Writers Workshop. Oh, wow! At last time I was at Gen Con was back when I think I was like 18 years old, and it was up in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Oh, that was back in the day. Yeah, back in the day. So I. I'm just excited as can be about that. <laughs> Your gamer nerd is all yeah, a Twitter, uh, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm just like, ah. <laughs> and, and the usual round of short stories. I got a bunch of short stories coming out, but I, I often do. Uh, yes, we would expect nothing less, actually. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Kat, I will make sure all of that gets into the liner notes uh, if we have room. <laughs> Fortunately, it's the internet. I can just go for miles on that. <laughs> uh, but my co-host, Moses, my man, I know you have some awesomeness brewing as well. Please share with our listeners what, what what's fomenting in the distillery of that wondrous imagination of yours. Well, this is really exciting. Uh, so some of you guys might remember that I'm finishing up The Ninth Wind. It's my second novel. Um, lots of things have changed for me. 13 months ago, I didn't know I was having a son uh, who was born in, in November. You know? Yay! Um, I didn't know I was going to break my wrist in December. Not so yay. <laughs> Not um, so yay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and, and, you know, life continues to amaze me with, with changes. So uh, I had no idea I would be, for example, a fourth grade teacher, which I am at this point teaching fourth grade in the afternoons at my son's elementary school. Lucky fourth graders. Dude, you, you're going to be an awesome teacher. Working on it, you know, and uh, it's a Waldorf-inspired charter school, and they do some fun things in Waldorf oh, schools. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like in, in fourth grade, the kids learn Norse myths. You know, in fifth grade, they learn uh, Greek myths. So today, the kids at school, I led a movement exercise, and first I got to tell them the whole story of Fen the Fenrir, the Fenris wolf, and Tyr, and I created a movement exercise based around the wolf. And at the end of it, the wolf, you know, bites tears hand off and that kind of thing. So, um, so, so wait, whoa, 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 hold on. Wait, 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 wait. 
dropping that on me. <laughs> so, so, so the kids are going home, and Daddy says, "What did you learn today? Let me show you, Daddy." <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep. Welcome to Waldorf Education. So, um, <laughs> so you know, meanwhile. Um, you know, what I would have thought 13 months ago is that I would have this novel, you know, coming out, The Ninth Wind, uh, earlier than it is going to come out. I think it's, I set April 10th as the date for it. Um, what I'm doing next week, which I'm really excited about, we have spring break. It's this really exciting thing I forgot all about. It's uh, called spring break. And so I won't be teaching that week. And I'm going to do an actual writing retreat because I've got my uh, final copy edits in from Adria Laycraft, who's uh, the copy editor on The Ninth Wind. Uh, David Farland, um, yeah, she she's wonderful. And David Farland was the the content and all kinds of things editor wow. uh, before, before her. Um, so I've got all these copy edits I've got to do before the novel can go to the proofreaders. Uh, and I'm going to go up to this Buddhist institute um, near where I live for about eight days and hopefully come out of it with a book. Um, because I, I can't seem to write when I'm teaching. It's, it's kind of, I'm not good at multitasking. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, finishing a novel, like it's just, that takes my entire soul. So I I don't know how to just nibble away at that. So, um, so yeah, it's now a novel that three and a half years later, I, I've, I haven't read it in a couple months because I gave it to the copy editor. I have no idea what it's like. I, I hope it's good. You know, people seem to like it that have read it. Um, so it's, I'm going to put it out there and, and hopefully people will really enjoy it and it'll be the start of something wonderful. Um, in the meantime, uh, you know, I'm actually doing a lot of teaching right now. So, uh, you got to roll with, roll with life. So that's where absolutely. I'm at. That's uh, awesome. Where, where can we find out more about the ninth wind? Uh, so my blog is, uh, sciencefictionfantasy.net. And I'm on Facebook and I'm on Twitter and, uh, this thing should be coming out, you know, April 10th again was the date I had set. It may work out that I just say, yes, I, I I've got to put it out. I've, I said the date. I'm going to put it out. I can do it. Uh, it may, it may be that I, you know, upload it for pre-order on that date and then give it another month or something like that. So it, it, it's coming near, you know, well, it's coming near. And well, there you go, that. friends. As you're out at Myrtle Beach, uh, wearing your bikinis or gawking at them and doing tequila shots, think of Moses in the Buddhist retreat. Working on his novel for you, that is that is fabulous, dude. I, I I couldn't be more delighted for you. And please keep us in the loop. We will shout that from the rooftops when it hits the stands. Thank you. Absolutely. All right, friends. Here's the deal. Uh, all of that goes into the show show notes. Absolutely. But for now, here's the thing. I want to sit down with both of you, bring on a guest writer, and I really want to workshop a story. What do you say? Sounds great. Sounds awesome. I think so, too. I think we should do this. Friends, don't you go anywhere. We will be right back. After winning a hard-fought victory, Commander Jared Mertz and Princess Kelsey discover another insidious foe blocking their way home. A remnant of the old empire still exists and seems allied with the savage, AI-dominated Pale Ones. With the existence of the Terran Empire at stake, another enemy, this one from Jared's past, threatens everything they've worked so hard to achieve. Jared and Kelsey must fight for survival while the fate of humanity hangs in the balance. Command Decisions Book 3 in the Empire of Bones Saga, available at Amazon.com. Get your copy today.
Welcome back, dear friends. And now we dive into dessert, the main course, the appetizer. This is everything. This is the full meal, the feast that is the round table, the story workshop. And those things do not happen without a bold and courageous, a creative and courageous guest writer willing to offer up his story for scrutiny, discussion, and the storming of the brain. And, and dear friends, our guest writer for this episode is a fantasy slash splatter elf slash weird writer fascinated by monster hunters, bone weapons, and undead unicorns. Oh yeah, we're going to have us some fun. Uh, He grew up in the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, played Final Fantasy and Legend of Zelda as a kid, which inevitably led to role-playing games and the novels of the Dragonlance and Forgotten Realms series. And by college... Dude was serious about becoming a writer. He has been a longtime contributor to the website Mythic Scribes, a close personal friend of the Roundtable podcast, where he serves as a moderator and article writer. His work can be found in Kizuna, Fiction for Japan, The Southern Quarterly, Hurricane Blues, and other anthologies. Currently, he lives in Kawasaki, Japan, with his wife and his collection of magic stones. Dear friends, please welcome... To the writer's chair here at the round table, Philip Overby. Phil, this is a delight for me on so many levels. We have been crossing paths uh, for years now over on the Mythic Scribe site, uh, and I am so delighted to have you sitting in the writer's chair now and so very grateful uh, at your courage and boldness at bringing your story forward, man. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much for having me on the podcast today. I'm looking forward to hearing what you're going to Put me through. <laughs> It'll be painless, largely, mostly painless. So so what are you doing in, in Kawasaki, Japan? Uh, I'm an English teacher here, so um, I've been teaching for about five years now. So I teach, usually I teach English conversation, uh, okay. about business classes, uh, children, adults, okay. just about everything. Now, now, I your your dialect is not strong, Phil, but you did grow up on the Gulf Coast of the Mississippi. Now, I'm curious: do you find that the the people that you teach English to do, do they come out with a bit of a drawl? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've never noticed that. Um, okay, it's it's actually interesting because for many of my students, they only hear my accent as just being an American accent. Okay, they they don't recognize uh, different regional dialects or anything so right um i've had i've had several students think that i'm from australia so that's kind of (laughs) interesting for me very cool well you can you can you can you can do away with that mythology very quickly absolutely (laughs) yeah Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Phil, let's let's get into this because I'm I'm keen to 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 hear, hear what Splatter Elf Weird is all about, dude. We're gonna give you uh five to eight minutes. Uh, uh give us the, the title, the format, your your target audience, uh introduce us to the theme, give us a tagline, introduce us to the world, the characters, give us some some tent poles of story that we can hang our brainstorming hats on, and we'll be off to the races. I'm I'm gonna get out of the way, dude. The mic is all yours. Okay, so uh, this novel, uh, novella actually, is titled Chef of Worms, a dark comic fantasy story. Uh, Here's the hook. Uh, Kento Tarkeda is a chef whose family has served gourmet meals to a finicky dragon for centuries. He is faced with a dilemma when the nearby town that supplies the dragon's food is overrun with marauders. 
When faced with a hungry and volatile dragon, Kento has to figure out how to feed him one way or another. This is a story about Kento deciding which is more important, his family's legacy or the welfare of the townspeople. It is set in the world of Splatter Elf, a weird fantasy wasteland with insane magic and over-the-top violence. The protagonist of the story is Kento, a legacy chef serving the dragon Orax. His cooking ability is considered adequate at best, while his social skills are shot to hell considering he spends all his time feeding a dragon. Kento is supported by Ariel Kazira, the daughter of his dead partner, Victor. She's an expert at underground tunnels, a follower of Momat, the god of earthen rodents, earning her the unflattering nickname Groundhog Girl. One of the antagonists is the dragon Orax, whose threat of coming unhinged keeps Kento on his toes. The other antagonist is Zarin Zirum, the leader of the small marauder band, the Crumbling Chains. Zarin is after the dragon's horde in order to build himself a new army worthy of obliterating anyone in his path. His plan is to cut off Orax's food supply and then have a dragon slayer, Ingrid the Pale Worm, finish off the weakened dragon. In Act 1, the chains have taken over the town of Holmbrim and cut off all supplies to Kento. Kento is faced with a difficult decision when his partner Victor Kazira shows up to the dragon's cave, severely wounded, with no food. Kento ultimately decides to cook his friend, after he's dead, of course, and serve him up. From this point onward, Kento has to take desperate measures to feed the dragon. This makes for low job satisfaction. After meeting up later with some of the escapees from Holmbrim, including his father, Yuta, and Victor's daughter, Ariel, he is chosen as part of a group to infiltrate the town. Ariel has used elaborate tunnels to lead some to escape. Kento agrees to be one of three people to enter the tunnels. Kento, Ariel, and a local guard named Bar Yuzna go together. Kento and Bar are captured by the chains, but Ariel manages to slip away by summoning a ghostly groundhog to ride away on. The bloodthirsty bastards say they'll allow one of them to live if they'll fight to the death. Bar refuses, but Kento attacks, killing him. Impressed by Kento's ruthlessness, the chain's leader, Zarin, asks who he is. Kento blurts out his true identity as the dragon's chef. They question why they shouldn't just kill him since his family has served Orax for centuries. He said he's loathed the dragon since he was a child. Kento says he has one advantage, trust. The dragon will eat whatever Kento gives him because he's too spoiled to eat normal dragon food like uncooked human flesh. Kento says that Orax will easily kill whoever, whoever is sent against him. He needs to be weakened, and Kento can do that by feeding the dragon poisoned food. Zarin has a big party to celebrate their new planet. Everyone gets drunk. While only a skeleton crew watches over the town late at night, Kento sneaks back to the tunnels thinking of escaping completely. Ariel is waiting at the tunnels and asks what happened to Bar. Kento claims Bar was killed by Zarin. Secretly, he is overwhelmed with guilt. He's now a murderer and not just a chef that fed his friend to a dragon. Kento tells Ariel that he's going to stay in Holmbrim as a captive and learn more about the chain's plans. Ariel leaves Kento, trusting he will do the right thing to help free the townspeople. In Act 2, Kento has gained the trust of the chains. He does his best with the materials he has to make an exquisite meal for Orax. Kento says the poison food won't kill the dragon, but will make him weaker when Ingrid eventually attacks. Kento's attraction to Ingrid has affected his focus, though. She's two heads taller than him, drinks more than she talks, and has zero interest in any of Kento's conversation. 
but Kento believes he can still make a connection with her. He begins the process of giving the poison food to Orax. When he returns to the cave, the dragon almost kills him inadvertently, then asks what took so long. After eating, though, Orax seems pleased with the food. Kento feels pride for his cooking for once. As Orax's disposition towards him softens over the days, Kento sometimes feeds the dragon less to weaken the poison. Zarin gets angry when the week passes, and Kento says the dragon still hasn't weakened significantly. Zarin says they're going to increase the poison in the food, and Kento will have someone accompanying him, Ingrid. That way she can scout out the cave and also keep a watch on Kento. Around this time, Kento goes to visit his father after hearing he's dying from eating bad mushrooms and makes a promise to him to continue their legacy. The next day, Kento asks to train with Ingrid in swordplay in case Orax tries to kill him one day. This seems to at least make her interested more in Kento, although still not romantically. Kento thinks practicing swordplay is going to get him ready for an eventual showdown with Zarin. Kento and Ingrid train and travel to the cave every day. He feeds Orax, who is starting to get weaker, but also seems to enjoy Kento's company more and more. Ingrid gets close enough to the dragon one day to see his weakened state. She decides they should be ready to strike. Kento thinks this is his chance to both challenge Zarin and to impress Ingrid with his awesome sword skills. In Act 3, Zarin announces that Ingrid is ready to go kill the dragon. Kento steps up and challenges Zarin to a one-on-one fight. Kento says if he wins, the chains have to leave Homebrim. Zarin reveals that he found Ariel crawling around in the underground caves, and she spilled the beans about her friendship with Kento. He says if Kento loses, Ariel dies. Kento and Zarin fight. As Kento is brutalized, he looks around at everyone. The only person that looks worried about him is Ariel. Ingrid has no reaction at all. His delusions of strength and love shattered, he breaks down and pleads for Ariel's life. A screech pierces the sky, and Orax appears, attacking the town and swallowing some people whole. The dragon finally realized he'd been poisoned all this time. In the chaos, Kento struggles with Zarin as Ingrid tries to fight off the dragon. Kento finally manages to kill Zarin with Ariel's help after she goes full-on were-groundhog. But Kento's <laughs> gravely wounded. Ariel helps guide townspeople down into the tunnels to escape. Ingrid is wounded as well by Orax. Kento limps over to stop Orax from killing her. He says it's his, it's his fault all this happened. Orax questions why he shouldn't kill everyone. Kento says he'll promise to cook Orax's favorite food again, and he can even watch him prepare it. They seem to come to an agreement, but Ingrid emerges out of nowhere and plunges her spear into the dragon's neck, killing him. Ingrid half-heartedly thanks Kento for helping her and says that the people of Homebrim won't be happy with him going forward. She says she'll offer him protection if he cooks her hot meals on the road. Kento decides it's time to forge a new legacy. He thinks maybe one day he can become a great dragon slayer, but in reality he's just becoming a cook to a new patron. They loot loads of gold from the dragon's cave and set out. Meanwhile, Ariel arrives to the cave when the dust settles disappointed that Kento left them with all this shit to clean up. She believes they can start the town over with all the remaining dragon's gold. When looking through Orax's cave, she finds some of the remains of her father, Victor, and his tattered clothes. That's when she knows that Kento fed him to the dragon. The novella ends with Ariel still covered in Kento's blood, teeth gnashing. Groundhog girl wants vengeance. The end. <laughs> all right. 
That's Splatter Elf. Okay. Uh, uh, Phil, before we go forward on this, what are you hoping to get out of the next 45 minutes or so? I guess uh, mostly I'm interested in trying to figure out how to balance the tone of kind of – I'm trying to go for almost, you know, the grim dark subgenre has become popular recently. Right. And I'm a big fan of it also, but I think what I'm trying to do is uh, make a story that's so ridiculously dark that it transcends being dark and becomes funny, kind of. Okay. Kind of like black humor, I guess. Okay. All right. We can we can we can bend our minds in that direction. Definitely, definitely. Well done. Excellent pitch, sir. All right. Uh We'll advance forward here, but before we do, we really need to cover our asses. So, Moses, would you be so kind, good sir, uh, as as to deliver our patented disclaimer? Indeed. Uh, this is for Philip today, but it's for all writers out there as well to remember at all times that uh, when you hear people like me and Dave and Kat giving all these ideas for a story, uh, of course, we hope they're they're wonderful, but you've got to realize there's a very high likelihood that some of it is going to be complete and utter bullshit, if not all of it. Uh, <laughs> just got to remember that. And that means that you take what works for you and you throw out the rest. Absolutely. You down with that, Phil? I'm down with bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of it might be gold. You never know. It's, it's entirely likely there might be. Let's 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 find out. Well, traditionally, we we start with a quick once around the table to give first impressions of the story and to ask any questions of clarification. And of course, we always yield the floor to our guest host. So, Cat Rambo, start us off. What uh, what are your first impressions of Phil's story pitch? And and what questions do you have for him? Well, I really like it. I mean, it it seems really well thought out, and there's interesting stuff in people's actions, right? It's it, it's not like this happens and this happens and this happens. It's this happens so this happens. Then this happens because of that, and I I really appreciate that. Um, I am utterly charmed by this world. Uh, I, I <laughs> this splatter elf thing I think is awesome, and I I, I love the kind of the ground her girl likes wants vengeance. <laughs> um. Two things. One is one is that it's pretty complicated, but you say it's novella length, so you know you can get away with complicated in in novella. Um, if you were saying this was a short story, I would say you were on crack. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know. So, but you 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 know that it takes a lot of space. I'm I'm a little worried about your character, your main Kinto, not being sympathetic. Um, you know, and that, that's always a, a problem with, with care, you know, because that main character is your reader's point of view, right? If this was a, a first person shooter, they're writing, they're the body that they're kind of running around on the screen. And so you want to make sure that, uh, there's points of identification for the reader. And so you want, you want to kind of, I, I personally would kind of stress, Things that the reader would identify with, such as moments of frustration or hunger or, you know, whatever. But just make sure your reader can find themselves in there. Um, it's the moment where he kills the guy. Uh, you know, it, it's the fight to the death. This is what it does, right? Because the fight to the death, the kind of as we customarily understand it, the good guy refuses to fight. Right. It's the bad guy who's like, oh, he's hesitating. Whack. Um, <laughs> you know. And, and so you, you've got kind of an uphill battle there. So you're just going to – and that's doable. And, I, you know, one of the cool things about uh, Grimdark and Abercrombie 
is uh, I'm thinking of the character who's the torturer, right? It, it, it's in Imperial Inquisitor Glotka, or, or I, I think. But, you know, one of the reasons that we like him, there's two things. One is that he's in constant pain, right? He's in constant, terrible pain. And two is we understand why he is the way he is, right? We know that he's been a prisoner of war himself, that he himself was tortured. And that's one of the reasons why he's such a good torturer. Um, and so because we understand that, we're willing to put up, you know, we're willing to cut him some slack because we know that. So I'm, I'm sorry, that's much more than brief. No, no, that's fine. Okay, that's fine. Okay. Uh, uh, and, and I think you've raised some good points. Uh, absolutely. I think one of the one of the very fine lines to walk with with grim dark and, and even fill with your intention of going so dark that it actually becomes amusing is is that that sympathy, that connection. There needs to be something there. Um, and that'll be a challenge as we find moving forward. Did, did you have any questions for Phil at all? Anything that didn't make sense? Um, no, it all made sense to me. Yeah, it it is. It is kind of a cast of thousands. You know that. You know what I mean. That that sort of syndrome where there's oh, here's another character. Yeah. But it it, it seems to me I'm not seeing anybody where I'm like oh you can combine them with this. I just be aware that I would not let too many secondary characters creep in. Right. Unless unless they're purely there for body count and then you yeah, can just mark yeah. them with an X. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, excellent. Thank you, Kat. Uh, Moses, your first impressions and any questions? So a question for you. The the kind of the conflict you poised, uh, you put in the beginning was about Kento having to choose between was it like sort of saving the town versus something with family? Yes. The idea is that. um this dragon has been served by his family for centuries, like hundreds of years. Okay. Uh, this family has been basically feeding this dragon exquisite gourmet food in order to keep him pleased. So this is very important for his family. And there, there's part I didn't really mention uh, in the pitch is that his father's constantly pressuring him to keep the family legacy going. So this is kind of his... I guess sort of his albatross in a way is that he has to keep this violent dragon happy to secure his family's legacy as this family of chefs that have taken care of this dragon for years and years. Okay, I get it now. And it, it, does this have a Japanese feeling to it? Um, yeah, I guess it's like I didn't really think of this as a uh, like a medieval European kind of story. I'm not. I'm not positive. Uh, about oh, it's definitely a secondary world, definitely yeah, that. Yeah. So I'm not. I'm still kind of uh, the splatter elf world. I've I've dabbled with before. I wrote a I wrote a, a novella called The Bloody Unicorn, which is <laughs> floating around out there. Um, <laughs> and it it was more of a medieval style, I think. So the, the splatter elf world, I guess, isn't fleshed out completely yet it's more of a concept world i guess okay kento i was just guessing kento had a, a japanese sort of vibe to him but is that not yeah. true okay he does and then when uh kento so he kills Baryesna, right uh, he kills bar yuzna who is the uh one of the town guards mm-hmm. right. in the fight to the death why did yeah. he have to fight bar yuzna again um this was just kind of like a sadistic thing the this, these marauders forced them to do when they captured them. Okay. All right. Yeah, I think that goes to Cat's uh, point about likability. <laughs> it's a tough moment for, <laughs> for for Kento. Okay. And then Victor dies how? 
when the Marauders attack the town, Victor's uh, wounded badly, and he he kind of shows up to the dragon's cave to warn Kento and to tell him, you know, we're not going to be able to feed the dragon for a while. And Kento kind of tries to help him or whatever, but he dies anyway. He just dies from wounds. Okay, okay. So, so after he's dead, Kento's sitting there. He has no food. He, has, he doesn't have his food supply, so... Uh, he does kind of the little shop of horror things and chops them up and feeds them to the dragon. Okay. All right. All right. No, I, I, I love it. It's, 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 it's great. Okay. No, I'm done. I okay. do love it though. It's really cool. <laughs> well, and, and I, I agree. There's, there's, there's a, as, as Kat observed, there's a wonderful causal chain, uh, uh, where, where actions being taken by characters, affect the story and and alter its course and that's that's superb um i will confess i'm gonna have a challenge here because the grimdark vibe is is not my wheelhouse uh uh and and going even deeper into that to see the humor on the other side uh uh i'm 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 gonna probably just take my cue from everyone else as far as what's good or what's not but some of my suggestions might be uh, a, a little soft and fluffy, and I will just <laughs> warn you right now, uh, as far as that goes. Um, major, at least twenty-five bonus points for the ghostly groundhog that guides Ariel out of the tunnels. Uh, that's epic, and that I kind of think is kind of my confusion is that there are some of these wonderful moments that just make you smile uh, because of their absurdity, and and that absurd ex- uh, and of course absurdity is is something taken to great extremes. Uh, uh, I can find the humor in that, and I'm wondering, Phil, if if that's if you're almost taking a satirical eye towards the the the, the grim dark vibe, is is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I would say like I guess I'm kind of inspired a lot by uh, Terry Pratchett in a way, and okay, uh, okay, and um, I kind of want to be like the evil Terry Pratchett or something. <laughs> Dark Terry Pratchett. <laughs> that may be the first time I've heard anybody express that particular uh, desire. Well, satire I can get behind, and and dark satire I can get behind. So that gives me a leg to stand on. Um, one uh, uh, observation that I had. Well, first I had a couple of questions. Uh, uh, Kinto's escaping. He's on his way out, uh, uh, and then he meets Ariel and feels guilty and changes his mind. That that felt a bit abrupt. Uh, is, 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 was that just because you had to get him to go back and engage? It feels, it feels kind of forced. Yeah. There are a couple of things I had written, but I cut them out to shorten the pitch. Sure. Sure. You know, Ariel basically is sneaking people out of these tunnels as, as much as she can every night. Right. And, uh, after Kento kills Bar Yuzna, he is, he feels very guilty about it. I, I don't want it. I don't want it to be like he just kills him and he's like, yeah, hell yeah, I killed, his, <laughs> killed that asshole or whatever. He, okay. I like that. Okay. I want him to try to get away from this situation because I think he knows if he hangs around these uh, marauders, then he's going to, they're going to rub off on him and he's going to, you know, he doesn't want to become like that. He doesn't want to become this. Okay. You know, and when he's confronted by Ariel's nobility and goodness, it, it, it casts a, a sharp contrast to his own cravenness and and he apparently has a conscience and turns around and goes back. Yeah, I think 
Okay. I think I want I think I want to highlight that it seems like he's kind of heartless or whatever, but I I kind of see him more as I was a big fan of like Tales from the Crypt when I was younger, and uh, I always liked the way Tales of the Crypt would kind of take a a character who was a jerk or a loser or something and somehow something would twist at the end and he, the the person would end up worse off than they were before. Okay. So kind of what happens at the end is where, uh, he ends up working for the dragon slayer instead of the dragon, the dragon slayer who has absolutely no interest in him as a person whatsoever. So he, he basically sacrifices his relationship with the dragon that he had that was bad. And now he has sort of a worse relationship. At, at the end of the story. So this is not the feel-good smash hit of the summer that we're going for here. <laughs> no, All right. not really. All right, very good. All right, <laughs> I, I have other questions, but we can address them once we get into the workshop a little more. Um, uh, Kat, you had brought up the uh, uh, the danger, the, the peril of, of an unsympathetic character. Let's let's lead into the, the actual brainstorming session while we, to talk about Kinto a little bit. What what are your concerns with Kinto, and what do you think we can do to, to, to maybe give him a little more um, a little more hook in the in the reader's heart? Well, I, I think that a, a pretty obvious one uh, showed up, right? The idea of, of parental pressure. I think that's one that, that most readers are going to identify with is the idea that your your parents are not not only parental pressure, but that uh, perhaps I'm giving away too much, but that feeling that one's parents <laughs> are disappointed, right? Uh, you know, and 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 I I think that's a pretty common experience. I'm sure no aspiring writer has ever gotten that from their parents. Come on. <laughs> yeah, not me. Not me. <laughs> that's a good but, point. So so I would I would kind of hit on that. Um and the thing I want to say about this is, you know, I humor, I love uh, Terry Pratchett and I love fantasy humor, so I'm I'm very excited about this. But humor is harder to write than sad stuff for one thing and humor it's very easy to slip into mimicking somebody else so part of this kind of carrying this project off is going to be figuring out what your voice is and i think you're established enough that you probably know that but that's that's one of the things that you're going to have to watch out for is like if you read a bunch of terry pratchett you're going to come back to it and you're going to be writing bad terry pratchett <laughs> so just kind of be be aware that that if you're going to write humor it is a place where you do have to be sort of conscious of your style and sort of turning the knob to 11 on the philipness of it mm -hmm. if that makes sense mm -hmm. absolutely because i i really got a sense uh, uh in, in in the overall story feel it feels like it's doing it, it feels like it's not sure what it is or, or that it's trying to be two different things. We get these 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 very grim grim moments, and then we get these wonderful ghostly hedgehogs, uh, uh, groundhogs, uh, guiding us through the tunnels. And uh, I I I'm I don't know how to reconcile those two very contrasting images in a single story. I Moses, what are your thoughts, man? Well, I mean, this is going to take a lot of skill to pull off. Obviously, I think I mm -hmm. think it's brilliant. I think it's really brilliant. I mean, the mm -hmm. the, the I agree. The concept is brilliant. It, it's it just comes down to execution. Um, I, yeah. I think I think you know, and there's just there's a whole spectrum of what that could be. Um, 
Yeah, I agree, uh, Kento. I, I think Kento is very likable from the beginning. A, he's very special. He's the guy who gets to feed the dragon. I mean, that makes him cool from the outset. And uh, as Kat said, the element of the, the father's pressure uh, and the family legacy that he has to live up to, um, that also feels kind of like a Japanese theme to me. You know, I think that's that's a good fit. Um, I, I'm wondering, is Kento himself, is he funny? Like, you know, are his thoughts funny? Yeah. I kind of feel like, um, you know, in Japan we have a culture, it's called otaku. Mm-hmm. And otaku are basically people who are isolated for long periods of time and kind of obsess over one thing. And it has, I think it has a positive meaning in Western culture more than it does in Japanese culture. Like some people don't, if, if you say you're otaku in Japan, it's not always considered cool. I think it's becoming more cool now. But I look at Kento as sort of kind of this kind of person. Like he's his whole life is feeding this dragon, feeding the dragon, feeding the dragon, feeding the dragon. So when he's kind of exposed to the outside world, I think he does things the way he just imagines people do things. Mm. He doesn't know. He doesn't know for sure. Like like he tries to romance this dragon slayer who has absolutely no interest in him whatsoever. And that's just what he thinks he's supposed to do. Well, let me, let me ask you something, Phil. If, 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 the, if the Raiders didn't come and everything continued on, would Kinto want to do something else? Or is he, is he committed to being the feeder of the dragon? Um, I, think, I think it's kind of like the idea of you get hired for a job and you stay there forever. Uh, even if you're not necessarily happy with the job, you just do it because you're getting benefits. And so he's stuck in a rut. It's kind of like that. Like it's not that he ha- completely hates it. He sees it as like security and its legacy. And but he doesn't have any ambitions beyond that. I mean, I think he dreams about other things. Like what? That's what I want to know. What does he dream about? He dreams about you know meeting a woman and you know maybe being uh, a merchant or being a, a warrior or, or doing things he's read about or heard about. See, that's your hook right there. Yeah. I, I really think that, but cause, cause without that, he's, he's just a drone that stuff happens to. And, and that's not as engaging as a guy who has dreams. I want to be a merchant. I want to go into the, you know, show him when he goes into the market square before the, 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 the guys come in, before the, the crumbling chains come in and take the town. You know, show him you know, being really good and, and you know, reveling in his mercantile status here. Uh, you know, maybe it's the high point of his day or whatever. Maybe there's, a, maybe, maybe there's somebody uh, that, that he has a fancy for. Uh, uh, at, at the at the fresh fruit stand or the the you know the raka meats the unicorn meat stand or whatever whatever you got there in Splatter Elf World uh, that uh, that that he he enjoys that maybe God maybe it's Ariel maybe maybe Ariel works it, maybe we can establish a connection with Ariel early on uh, not a romantic one uh, although I'm not sure that's out of the question either I don't know I'm I'm kind of rambling at this point but but definitely I'd I'd love to hear more in the story about Kinto's dreams 
and and what he aspires to. I think that's going to be a hook. I think some of that could be good. I, I think I was just asking, you know, is he funny? Because the tone of the story is quite humorous, even though it's quite dark, too. And Kento being the central character, I feel like you've got to make him really quirky in a way so that I think if he's just like obsessive and perfectionistic about his, his duty and all these things, like I think the story would fail if if that's who he is. And then he runs into all these other things because he would be this kind of serious guy and running into like, you know, uh, groundhog, wear groundhogs and things. And, you know, like 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 he's like I, I've got to be able to kind of like smile at him as I read him and go, Oh yeah, he's all these things, but he's cute. He's funny. Like he's got this tick. He's got this mannerism. You know, he's always saying this thing. He's always obsessed with some silly thing or like, you know, there's there's kind of a combination with him. I feel like I want to see him be, you know, kind of grim and also like, like funny at the same time. Um, Does that, does that resonate or does that talking about gallows humor? I, I'm thinking you have created a new genre, which would be the grim funny. <laughs> grim funny, yeah, I like grim that. funny. So how do you how do you rock grim funny? <laughs> well, I guess it's your it's your genre, Phil. So you can you can pretty much yeah, define yeah. the the scope and and stakes at that point. I mean, I guess I guess if we're going with grim funny as the idea, um, I mean, really, Phil, anybody that you know. Reads the bloody unicorn, just the title alone. I mean, even Cat chuckled at the name of it, and I'm sure that there is there's humor in there as well as as the grim thread. Am I right? Yeah, like um, I don't see it as much in in fiction, but I see it a lot in TV. South Park has that kind of humor, I think. And, okay. Uh, Adult Swim TV shows, right, uh, like, right. like Metal Metalocalypse, about the heavy metal band that's like the second biggest economy on earth, and yeah, yeah. all these fans flock to them, and it's really dark, but it's also very funny because it's like a, kind of a send up of, of rock music and you know celebrity worship and these kind of interesting sure. things. So I, I want to see. Um, Kento's quirkiness, the things that make him cute and endearing and funny. I want to see that interact with Ariel's quirkiness in a really entertaining way because mm. she's a follower of, of Momad. I think they're going to have a lot of dialogue between the two of them. You know, what is uh, someone who follows the, the god of, you know, the earth and rodents, you know, who, who turns into a wear groundhog, which is brilliant. I mean, <laughs> that's brilliant. Um, you know, like, ha- create something for Kento where that interacts with someone who believes in ro- who worships rodents in a very funny way. I don't know what his feelings are about rodents. I don't know, you know, if if the dragon has feelings about rodents and that has influenced Kento in some way. You know, like like what, what like I want this this chemistry between those two. I, I think Dave was picking up on that earlier. Like what, what's Ariel? There's there's we want something with Kento and Ariel because they get quite a bit of dialogue, don't they? I'm trying to figure out if if he gets more dialogue with anyone else, unless it's the uh, Zarin, the leader of the Marauders. I would say he has he has a fair deal of scenes with Ariel together, and there is kind of this I wouldn't say romantic connection, but it's kind of you know uh, her her father was friends with Kento, one of Kento's only friends, really. So they know each other, and I would you know I'm imagining they're around the same age. No, so, no. What if what if she feels after Victor dies? What if she feels some sort of devotion, loyalty, oath, something that she has to do for Kento, and, and then humor comes out of that? And then, of course, at the end, that makes her 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 rage all the more, you know, visceral. Um, if she sort of 
you know, trusted in Kento for some reason and then found that that was not a good idea. I can see that. Because he fed her father to the dragon. Right. Yeah. Right, right. So, Kat, uh, applying some of the, some of the tactics that you've used in, in, in your stories, and I, I, I'm, I'm going to say something that I think I've seen and, and please bear me out or not. Um, but part, part of the, the structure of, of a story is, is creating Moses. You brought it up, you know, who he has dialogue with, who he interacts with and, and those, uh, what comes out of those interactions tends to be a driving, uh, uh, force in terms of driving the story forward, raising the awareness of what the issues are, the themes and so on and so forth. Um, we've, we've got, Kinto and Ariel and uh, uh, what's the guy's name? Zarin, the the merchant or the 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 crumbling chains dude. Cat, is that enough? Do you think to to articulate the the story that that, that Phil put forward? Oh yeah, I mean okay. he's, he's he's got uh, even more than that as as well, right? You've got Ingrid. Oh right, Ingrid. Yes, holy crap! Kara, Yesna, and you know, it's in the the guy who dies at the beginning, um, Ariel's. Dad. Victor, Victor, yeah. Victor, but uh, so here's two things that I want to say. Uh, you know, and 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 one is that uh, the risk that you run, and and I think the reason that there's a slight hesitation for me is is that sometimes when you do uh, kind of like I'm going to push this over the top and make it so. X that it's funny. Sometimes you have to be very clear about signaling to the reader that this is funny and not me being deadly serious and not very good. <laughs> uh, do you know what I mean? It's it, it's just uh, you need to kind of set the reader's expectations. So one of the things that you're going to want to make sure is is from moment one, you need to signal to the reader what the mood is. Uh, you know, so in your very first paragraphs, you're going to have to kind of be be setting them in that but i you know i love this and one of the things i love about <laughs> splatter elf is it's got this sort of ralph bakshi wizards feel to me and yes. I just, I, it isn't isn't it's exactly it right yeah and, and, very much so and and i'm just i'm intrigued by it. it's also got a, it just i, I want to read this because i'm so intrigued by the world and i'm actually kind of you know i, I i'm not even i mean I, the story sounds very interesting but i'm kind of more intrigued by the world uh you know it's it's just so cool so I'm, I'm sure that's not helpful at all. <laughs> well, it's affirming, if nothing else, yeah. and that's always a good thing. Uh, Your world is super cool. Yeah. yeah. Thank, so thank I, you very much. I'm curious. Uh, uh, you say that Victor is Kinto's partner. Yes. So are, is, is Victor his brother? Because this is a family business. How does that dynamic work? Um, the, the way I kind of looked at it is that Kinto essentially lives in this cave in the and the cave is pretty i wouldn't say super far away from the town but it's far enough that it's a, dis, a distance uh victor's job as his partner is that he gathers up all the supplies needed to feed this dragon on a daily basis so he goes around to all the people in the town and he gathers spices or he gathers meat or okay. he gathers all okay. these things yeah yeah and then he brings them to Kento, and that's kind of their relationship. Okay, so he's the procurer. So he, he's he's, but he's not really a partner. He's kind of uh, uh, an assistant more so than anything else. Because a, a partner implies that there's two family lines involved here. And the reason that I'm pursuing this is is because this is our hook into Ariel. 
and and Ariel, as has been observed by by Cat and Moses, is is definitely a a pivotal character around which Kinto's story is going to be told. So I'm 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 trying I'm working out the the dynamic and seeing you know is is Ariel in line for for her father's position then uh, does does the daughter inherit uh, is are what what are Ariel's stakes in this Yeah I, I I didn't really think about that that's a good point um yeah maybe it could be like a two legacy families have been working together Sure. It's kind of it's kind of an established position, kind of. Right. They're the procurers and the preparers, and you work yeah, in yeah. tandem. I, I'm, I'm the reason I bring this up is because what is what does Ariel want after her father has passed away? Obviously, she's she's devastated and and stricken because she must love him dearly and deeply. In fact, we probably need to see that up front uh, just to make his death and Kinto's actions that much more. Um, but but after her father dies, what does she want? What is what is her desire in, in the immediate and in the in the larger world? Well, I thought I was thinking that Ariel doesn't know that her father is dead. Okay, um, he just disappears, and you know that's something I didn't bring up. Also, he 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 she doesn't know where he is. Right. So, but but Marauders way, just came in and attacked the town. It's it's you know it's a logical leap that she might fear his death. Yeah, I think that's yeah uh, something that she's worried about. Um, but I think her main focus is to sort of get as many of the villager or the townspeople out of the town through these caves. So that, that's kind of her her goal is to to help free people from the crumbling chains. Essentially, that's right. kind of her main goal. And while she does so, searching desperately for her father at at every turn. Yeah. So, so, and I'm wondering, I'm. And guys, help me out. I'm just trying to to lash Ariel and Kinto uh, uh, together. Maybe maybe Ariel comes to Kinto for help uh, in some capacity. Uh, uh, their their paths are are not necessarily affirmed until that meeting in the in the tunnels underneath. I'm, I, it seems like there needs to be a more of a connection. Or or am I over am I overthinking that? Do you think? I, I think you're right in that certainly if you want the the last moment with Groundhog Girl wants vengeance, it's going to be a much more powerful moment uh, if that relationship is there earlier. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly that. I mean, it, having that that fostering of trust and and uh, uh, you know maybe maybe she leans on on Kinto. Maybe maybe Kinto is. You know, because Victor was his partner in this and, and their families were obviously lashed together at the hip for generations, Ariel would, would go to Kinto for help. And, and that would be a wonderful writhing stake to, to grind into into <laughs> Kinto's soul. Yeah. Uh, so so having having that be one of the things that's pulling Kinto through this, because you've got what have we got? We've got uh, uh, the dragon. We've got. Uh, uh, the chains, and now we've got Ariel. So a nice three-way tug on our protagonist. That that seems mm-hmm. like a good dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that that uh, uh, and and Kat, you had invoked that the the family pressure thing is a good thing, uh, and I agree. Um, but but the the dying father on the deathbed struck me as a little. Well, and I guess if you're going to do satire, uh, I guess we can go ahead and 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 trot out those tropes and raise them up. Uh, uh, I, I, 
my thought was maybe maybe have the the father be uh, 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 more of a goad to Kinto. It's like Kinto, you need to get out there. You need to get these these marauders out of here. We got a job to do, and constantly riding him and riding him and riding him until the the old man says, "Fine, screw it. I'm gonna I'm gonna do what the youngins ain't gonna do and take up his sword and attack and uh, uh, the leader Zarin. And of course, Zarin kills him. Uh, 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 and and Kinto maybe tries to help and is is ineffective in doing so. We can have that wonderful dying father scene. Uh, feed the dragon boy. <laughs> feed the dragon. <laughs> See, I'll do the audio for this. I'll totally do the audio for this. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah I like that idea. Of, I, I, I see his father as this kind of like, he's disappointed in his son because the dragon's not as happy with Kento as he was with uh, Kento's father. Mm-hmm. And it constantly compares him to the father. You know, the dragon's always, well, your father did it this way. Your father did it that way. <laughs> nice. Nice. So, he, he always brazed the kidneys. Why aren't you brazing <laughs> the kidneys? <laughs> he put more rosemary in it. <laughs> Where's the damn rosemary? That's it. I keep telling you. <laughs> well, and, and I'm seeing, you know, as, as we discuss this more, the, the, the terrain's becoming much more clear for me, for, for Kinto's terrain, because you've got uh, uh, parental duty. In the form of the father, you've got uh, uh, that that ideal of of romantic love in in the form of Ingrid. Uh, uh, you've got the the chance to be a hero, so you've got this villain uh, uh, in the, in the face of Zarin. And I don't know what Ariel represents that that desire to do good, maybe uh, uh, to to do the right thing. I don't know. What do you guys think? I want to point out a parallel that I just noticed that I think could get exploited. Yeah. That, that Ariel, if she's, it's her father gets killed, uh, you know, at the end, that's a moment of, of sort of reacting to parental pressure herself. You know, she herself has this sort of uh, weird thing going on. Uh, just as he's reacting to his uh, father, she is at the end. I mean, and that's a, a possible Something that you might play around with a little bit if you wanted to. Absolutely. Uh, and I just thought of something with, you know, with Kento and Ariel. I mean, you've got, again, rodents, right, with Ariel and, and her thing with rodents. And Kento, who's been feeding a dragon for a long time. So rodents would probably be the enemy of someone who is is working with food. Ah, time, yes. You know? So maybe Kento has this real thing about rodents and, you know, and <laughs> and that that there you go, right? You've got this this funny chemistry um, between yeah, the sure. two between the two of them that you could really um, have some fun with. Well, yeah, and you could also argue that you make sacrifice to the god of rodents so that they stay out of your grain and stay out of your food, and 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 so that's what Ariel could say. Ariel could make that argument, you know? And, yeah. And, yeah, no, it's good. Momat is good. Um, <laughs> you just haven't been making the appropriate sacrifices. Yeah. Come to Momat. <laughs> <laughs> I had some thoughts on that that fight with uh, Baryezna, the guard as well. Yeah. Uh, the city guard. So it, there, there are a lot of ways you could do this. And here's where you have to be really careful with us, Philip, because we could be messing with something really important in your story. So definitely put your bullshit detector on right here. <laughs> uh, but... Again, how 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 can he kill? Like, I'm just going to give you some other ideas. Like maybe he kills Baryezna without uh, a willingness to do it. Maybe there is no willingness on his part at all to do it. Um, but maybe 
I, I had a couple of random ideas. Like something comes into his mind, like this sort of Zen-like realization in the last moment, um, as Baryezna is like surging toward him, and it has something to do with with what Kento knows, why he's able to like dodge, you know, his, his strike, and you know, suddenly goes into this, you know, ninja um, strike, and and just knocks Baryezna out without even really quite meaning to, or maybe he just maybe he just ducks and Baryezna does himself in. But no, it's the dragon's tail. The dragon's tail is always swishing. He has to duck that thing. Yeah. Uh, Exactly, uh, as, as he goes exactly. in, and and of course the maneuver he uses, the same maneuver he uses to to gut trout and 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 poultry. Uh, it's the perfect gutting maneuver. He's just never used it on a human before. Yeah, it's like he's he's put so many hours into this thing that he does that when a human comes at him with it, his instinct kicks in. You know, or oh my god, he's he he, he, he's a food ninja. Right. He right. he discovers in his fight with the with the mercenary that all of his training is it's like it's like Mr. Miyagi paint the fence. Right. Yes, now it's gut the fish and chop the herbs and those are his fighting moves. Exactly. I, I, I was thinking of, you know, maybe he he knows the last meal that Baryezna ate and he knows that when someone eats this spice they're going to, you know, move in a certain way. They're going to be a little sluggish or the like anything. Like you come up with something like he knows it because of what he ate. He, he anticipates. And in a split second, this thing happens. And oh, man, Baryezna's dead. Damn Dude, it. I love that. You know? I do, too, actually. That's very awesome. And and that, that there's that quirk, Moses, that you were talking about earlier, that hook that 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 readers will 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 engage with. It's like, ah, what 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 food ninja sorcery is he going to whip up next uh, to get him out of this next thing? Phil, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think that's awesome. Like, I, I've been kind of thinking of something, you know, with with Ariel, I have that she turns into a were groundhog or whatever. And I, I was thinking, I need something cool like that for Kento. Yeah. Even though he's a chef, like, I want something. I, I kind of like the idea that maybe he has, like, a heightened awareness and maybe he can smell, uh, like Moses said, like, maybe he can smell what's on somebody's breath and he mm. knows what they ate last. And ah, uh, yes. That. Your last meal was seasoned with anise. Yes, I know <laughs> what to do with that. Uh-huh. <laughs> and only if you're Kento would you understand this, you know, so. Huh. Exactly, exactly. That's brilliant. I love that. The one thing that I'm, and, and I don't know if this is, is critical or not, and, and I just want to put it on the table, is is Kento's arc. And, and I will defer to the table on this one, but... Uh, uh, it, it it feels I, I don't have a clear sense of where he starts and where he ends. Uh, uh, it, it feels kind of like he hasn't gone anywhere. He, he's just changed employers. Uh, and that that to me, I, I want something more. I want some realization or awareness or or transformation of some kind as he undergoes all of these heroic things. How has he changed at the end? And and I'm I'm not getting that. Cat, are you are you feeling that too or no? Um, actually, I I could argue that you could have a very funny, ironic ending where he begins. I mean, he ends where he's basically in exactly the same position as as at the beginning. Sure, yeah, I was thinking. I you think know? that's possible too. Okay, and and have that be a realization. It's like holy crap! I've been through <laughs> all of this, and now I'm cooking again. That's it. That's it. You know, like, oh, I've gone through all this. And, oh. <laughs> I mean, he's he's a single-minded individual, it sounds like. So he might not change the that reader. Much. The reader sees it as like, oh, well, he's back in the same position. I want the reader to to kind of see that ironic thing, like like Cat said. But 
for him, I want him to feel like this is my chance to get away from all this and become yeah. a true true warrior. He, in his mind, he thinks this. But in reality, he's just a chef for another person, kind of. Then maybe somebody like Ariel will need to point out to him that, dude, you're doing the same thing you've always done. And and he could be all, no, 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 I, I'm going to be training for a dragon. And you look over at Ingrid and she's looking disdainfully at him and it's like, yeah, sure you are. Look, guys, we're, we're running out of time, so why don't we take one last turn around here, because we've, we've covered a lot of ground, we explored a lot of character and world arcs and so on, so, so one last quick trip around the table to, to sum up, to throw out any last-minute ideas and, and fill Phil's pockets, fill Phil's pockets, yes, I just said that, <laughs> with some literary gold. Uh, Kat, what about you? Final, final thoughts to, to send Phil on his way. Well, I, I think one of the things that I would really take advantage of is the food stuff and lots of, you know, flavors and sensory stuff like that. Um, I, I'm really charmed by it. And, you know, I when you write it, send it to me because I'd love to read it. I, I'm not editing anything. I just want to read it. Um, <laughs> so, you know, but feel free. I think it's a cool world, as I said. Absolutely. A complete agreement. Moses, what about you, sir? So I just had this funny thought looking over it, and I may be completely wrong about this, but other than feeding your best friend to a dragon and having to cut him up, which is pretty dark. Um, <laughs> other than that, you know, it, it isn't that dark to me. It's more funny. It's more characters. And it's, it's these funny twists and turns and, and personalities. And so for what it's worth, I just want to say be willing to let it be funny. You know, like, I mean, yeah. some grim moments, some dark moments. But um, I don't I don't know I, I, that that pulling off the grim and the funny at the same time would be masterful. I don't know if that works. I don't I just don't know how how well that works. Um, so I would say, you know, have those grim moments. But if you find that your humor is working, go with the humor. I, we're enchanted by the humor in the story. I think I don't think the three of us anyway, who are workshopping here, I don't think we're. Like, oh, I want more blood. You know, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know? we're not there. We're not like, there. Yes. <laughs> um, you know? Yeah, we, we just want to see these characters work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Very and, much so. So, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, for me, Phil, one thing that I've, I've noticed is that, that whether you were conscious as of it or not, you, you've placed Kinto in in s- between several rocks and hard places where he he's forced to act against convention, his convention as he's defined it. He's forced to poison the dragon who he has cared for all this time. Uh, uh, and and you know you you said Kinto hates him. I I would ask, does he really hate the dragon? Uh, uh, I can see a love-hate relationship. I can see a kind of uh, a grudging respect even. I mean, this this dragon is the source of his livelihood and his prestige, whatever prestige there is, uh, uh, for the dragon slayer in the town of Holmgrim. Uh, uh, it's his legacy. So, uh, uh, you know, playing that, you know, creating those bonds and then putting Kinto in these positions where he's forced to work against them you know his his father saying you must do this blah 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 and the death of the father for me seems like a transformative moment uh uh, uh and it's it's not in it because this is satire and dark it's not going to be a yes i must carry on the family legacy it's holy crap i'm free and the stark terror that that overcomes you when suddenly you're off the hook 
uh, uh, the dragon's probably going to die. Your your whole world is pulled out from under you. That's really kind of the climax of the story in my mind. And and understanding Kinto's mind up to that point and the, the various events that you guide him through, I think that's going to be a pivotal moment for you in, in understanding Kinto to the point where after you write that scene, I'm going to bet you have to go back and edit a few paragraphs earlier because you're going to discover something about him that you didn't know. Uh, so, so just, just look at the, look at the dynamic that you've put Kinto in and make sure that dynamic is exactly in service to the type of story you want to tell. And, and the story for all its satire and everything is about Kinto. Uh, uh, and you give us this, as Kat observed, it's a great world, awesome world, fabulous, exotic, quirky characters with ghostly hedgehogs and all sorts of marvelous uh, stuff. Uh, uh, but all of that is a light shining on Kinto in some way, shape, or form. Uh, uh, and making sure that you know what his arc is, you know, even, even if it is to end up as he was, uh, uh, knowing that and then making sure that those, those lights, those events, those aspects that you showcase in the story are in service to that then I, I think you're going to be golden. And I, I agree. This is this is fabulous. This is awesome. Phil, I, I got to tell you, man, thank you so much for, for stepping up and 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 showing the, the bold, courageous qualities that you so em, embody uh, by putting up this story, man. This has been awesome. Yeah, thank you guys so much. I appreciate everybody's uh, comments. And you've you definitely given me uh, lots of stuff to work with here. So Awesome. Awesome. Cheers for that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yay. Yay, all of us cheers. Well, and and Phil, here's the deal, man. You you know the round table uh, promise. You write this story and and please do and send it to Cat and then send it to Moses and send it to me cuz we all want to read this thing. You write this thing, you put it out in the world. Publish it however you want to publish it. And when you do, we will have you back and and we will we will knight you. In fact, what we'll do is we'll make you the master chef. <laughs> of the round table that that we, we've never had a master chef before uh and there will be entrails and and bones it'll be grim and dark and delicious and that's the carrot man you down with that oh yeah that sounds awesome <laughs> awesome i'm looking forward to it bud cat rambo once again uh for your second tour here at the big chair uh this has been fabulous thank you so much for making the time man this has been awesome thank you it's been a pleasure Absolutely. Ah, Moses, my man, my wingman, my co-host. Uh, uh, dude, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for, for, for making the time for this. It's, it's always a pleasure to have you uh, as my workshop and bud on these things. Mutual, mutual. <laughs> awesome. And friends, as long as we're doling out the gratitude, thank you for tuning in. You complete the circuit. You close the cycle. You make this why we do what we do. Uh, uh, so much gratitude and thanks for that. And if if you got as much literary gold as we did out of this, uh, uh, by all means, feel free to pay it forward. You can throw up a, a review on iTunes. Uh, and as always, thank you so much for, for the reviews that are up there. Uh, they're fabulous. Fabulous, and that helps us boost our ranks in the iTunes listing. Blog about us, uh, share a Facebook post uh, about the show. All of those things help. We even have we have a, a, a forum now at the at the new and improved Roundtable Podcast website, uh, where if you've got some ideas for Phil. Put them up there, man. Uh, uh, let, let's let's keep the discussion going in, in the virtual world, uh, uh, and and we can just keep making literary gold as we go. So, wow. 
I'm I'm lighting a cigarette, guys. This has been fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, uh, it's time for whiskey and cigarettes. And and awesome. the, the the fabulosity of all of this is is that as as exhausted and spent as we all are, uh, uh, in seven days it starts all over again. We have another fabulous guest host coming forth and and pouring wisdom into our ears. We have a bold and courageous guest writer offering up their story for brainstorming goodness. More more round table froth and fabulosity to be had uh but that's that's seven days away it's a long time i will grant you that moses help me out man what give what can our listeners do to to fill that that broad span of time between now and the next episode well i don't think i even have to say it because having heard the story of the wear groundhog People are already feeling pulled towards stories and media that they love. So just just continue to enjoy what you love, like the Wear Groundhog. Uh, remember his spirit throughout throughout your days. <laughs> That's and, right. Uh, just just enjoy. Just Maybe enjoy. some fan art. Maybe some fan art of the Wear Groundhog. Yes, awesome. <laughs> well, and friends, I will tell you as I always do. You find what you're looking for. So look look for the the blue label top shelf goodness. Look for look for the pretty present at the back of the tree look look for the cool stuff and i promise you if you look for it you will find it we will see you in just seven days until then you guys stay cool be frothy and be awesome and we will talk to you soon bye-bye aloha This episode of the roundtable podcast is copyright 2015 by wonder thing studios and is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David Labroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.